The following sermon is by Josh Tancordo, the teaching pastor at Redeeming Grace Church in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Redeeming Grace is a gospel-centered church that values rich biblical teaching and authentic Christian community. Learn more by visiting our website at redeeminggracepittsburgh.com. Before his conversion, John Newton was notorious for his life of sin. He lived during the 1700s and was born to a father who was the captain of a merchant ship and who took young John out to sea for the first time when he was only 11 years old. That would be the first of six voyages that John would go on with his dad. And then when John came of age, he eventually joined the British Navy and was eventually discharged, though, on some not-so-good terms, and found himself following in his father's footsteps as a sailor on various merchant ships, specifically ships that were involved with the slave trade. And so he basically kidnapped and enslaved fellow human beings for a living. And he was also quite rebellious in just about every other way you could imagine as well. Now, of course, uh, sailors aren't typically known for their refined manners and upstanding moral values. But by all accounts, John was just something else. Uh, He lived a life of such profanity, coarseness, and debauchery that even many of his fellow sailors reportedly were shocked by his behavior. Um, In fact, one time the crew of his ship, actually, I guess they just got tired of him or or something, but they they decided that they were just going to leave him in Africa to be a slave of the wealthy, uh, some wealthy landowner there. Um, Fortunately for him, though, his dad eventually sent someone down to get him out of that situation. And John subsequently rose in rank and became captain of his own slave ship. Yet during one particularly severe storm, when John thought the ship was surely going to sink and that all hope for survival was basically lost, he remembered some of the things that his mother had taught him about Jesus as a young child. And in the midst of that storm, he experienced a profound change of heart. Even though before that, he was known among the the slave trading industry as the great blasphemer, he now embraced the God he had for so long rejected. And thankfully, through what can only be described as a miracle, the ship ended up weathering the storm. And John Newton subsequently devoted his life to Jesus. He was uh, actually ordained into the Anglican ministry and became one of the key leaders of uh, the evangelical movement of the 18th century and was actually one of the leading figures along with William Wilberforce in abolishing the British slave trade. And so God, talk about the grace of God changing a person. God took this profane, blasphemous, grossly immoral slave trader, 
and transformed him into a child of God with a new heart and a new purpose and, and just a completely new way of living. And toward the very end of his life, as John was reflecting on all that he had been through and all the things that God had done in him and for him, he said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and that Christ is a great savior. What a wonderful summary statement of John Newton's life. His story is an incredible story of God's extraordinary grace. And there are many other stories, of course, that I could tell as well from throughout the history of the church. Of God showing extraordinary grace even toward those who were living lives of very visible and active rebellion against him. Uh, there are many other names I could mention and stories I could share, and yet perhaps none of them is as notable or dramatic as the story recorded right here in Acts 9. The story begins with a man named Saul persecuting Christians. And if you've been attending here for the past several weeks, then you know that we already encountered Saul back in chapter 8. Acts 8.1 records how Saul stood by approvingly as a Christian named Stephen was brutally murdered. And then verse 3 states that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then as we come now to Acts chapter 9, here's what we read in verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So Saul's basically spearheading the effort to stamp out Christianity once and for all. He actually takes the initiative to go to the high priest and get letters authorizing him to go to Damascus and arrest all the Christians he can find. He's on a mission to capture as many of them as he can. Yet as he's on his way to capture Christians, Saul actually ends up being captured by the grace of God. And that's the main idea of this passage, that as he's on his way to capture Christians, Saul ends up being captured by the grace of God. God turns the tables on him and shows him extraordinary grace. In fact, Saul would later write in 1 Timothy 2.14, looking back specifically on his own conversion, that the grace of our Lord overflowed for me. That's Saul's own summary of what takes place in Acts 9. The grace of our Lord overflowed for me. And by the way, just to make sure we're clear, when the Bible talks about the grace of God, it's not just talking about a personality feature or a disposition of God. You know, sometimes in modern language, we refer to certain people as you know, gracious people, just as a way of communicating that they're kind and thoughtful and you know, pretty nice folks, right? But when 
the Bible speaks of God's grace, it's talking about a lot more than just that, right? It's something that he actively demonstrates toward us in very significant ways. So perhaps God's grace is best defined as the unearned goodness and favor of God. And there are five characteristics of God's grace that we're going to see as we work our way through this passage. First, God's grace is given to the undeserving. God's grace is given to the undeserving. Uh, If there was ever anyone who didn't deserve God's grace, it was Saul. Look again at how verse 1 describes him. It says that he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So the picture we get of Saul isn't of someone who's just trying to do his religious duty or discharge the responsibilities that have been placed upon him. Now, this guy's in a murderous rage. He's obsessed with arresting as many Christians as he can and probably seeing many of them put to death as well. We're talking about a full-scale inquisition here. And not just in Jerusalem. Saul actually gets authorization to travel 150 miles outside of Jerusalem to a city called Damascus, which was about a week's journey away, just so that he can round up Christians there as well. Also listen to how he later describes his activities in a speech he gives in Acts 26, 9 through 11. He says this in his testimony before King Agrippa. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So returning to Acts 9, let's understand that Saul was out for blood. He, he wasn't just trying to you know, do what he had to do to make sure Christianity didn't spread and, and to keep Christians from their missionary activities. Now he wanted to make them suffer. Yet even while Saul's in this murderous rage, God shows grace to him. Again, God's grace is given to the undeserving. In 1 Timothy 1, 15 and 16, Saul, who by this time was going by his Roman name of Paul, would later write that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So why does it say Paul received mercy? It's so that in him, the foremost sinner, Jesus could display his mercy as an example to everybody else. In other words, Jesus wanted to make it clear that he is able to save anyone. If he can save Saul, he can save anybody. And by the way, 
that includes you. It doesn't matter what you've done in the past or what kind of a mess you've made of your life or how many people you've hurt along the way or, or the, the, the heinous things that you've done against God. You can't out-sin God's grace. That's the beauty of it. You, you can't out-sin God's grace because, you see, whatever you've done, Jesus already died to pay for that sin. That's the answer to all of this. That's how God can show such grace toward the undeserving and yet at the same time uphold his standard of perfect justice and righteousness. It's because Jesus bore our sins on the cross, right? He, he suffered the punishment we deserve so that what we receive isn't the, the judgment we deserve, but rather the grace we don't deserve. Of course, in order to receive that grace, God requires that we repent of our sins and put our trust in Jesus alone as our only hope of rescue. So if you think that you're undeserving of God's grace, you're absolutely right. But that's the whole point. God's grace is given to the undeserving. And Saul here is a perfect example of that. Also, for those who are already Christians, make sure you never lose sight of that reality. Don't ever lose sight of just how undeserving you were of God's grace. Because the more you grasp how undeserving you were of all that God's done for you, then the more you can appreciate the true depth and magnitude of the grace of God in saving you. And the more inspired you are to live a life of devotion to him. Not because you're trying to earn anything, but simply as an expression of your gratitude. Also, not only do we see in our main passage that God's grace is given to the undeserving, but we also see his grace initiates our journey to faith. That's the second characteristic. God's grace initiates our journey to faith. Look at verses three through seven. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So notice here how Jesus is the one who takes the initiative. He takes the initiative to seek Saul out. Saul wasn't looking for Jesus. Jesus was looking for Saul. And that's the way it always is. God's always the one who initiates the movement of someone coming to faith. In fact, he has to initiate because we never will. See, the Bible teaches that in our natural condition, we're spiritually dead. 
we don't have the spiritual capacity to come to God or even to take one step in the right direction on our own. You know, a lot of people mistakenly picture salvation as uh, God, you know, sort of reaching down to us as we simultaneously reach up to him. Um, several weeks ago, um, a number of the men from our church went on a, a rafting trip to Ohio Pile, and uh, it was a great time. Like, I think there were about maybe uh, two or three class five rapids on the river, as well as uh, numerous class four rapids, and man, I had a blast, I know, and uh, not surprisingly, with uh, such turbulent waters, the majority of men on that trip, I think five of the seven of us, uh, fell out of the raft at, at least some point during the trip. Uh, in fact, I think myself and Joe Urbanowitz were the only two guys who, who made it to the end without, without falling out. So I guess we get some kind, of, some kind of prize or something. I don't know. But we made it. And you would think that, you know, if someone's fallen out of the raft and you're trying to get them in, the easiest way to do that would simply be to, to you know, they reach out. And you grab hands and, you know, you pull them in, right? But as the rafting guides thoroughly explained to us before we went out on the river, that's actually not the easiest way at all. Because it turns out it's actually pretty difficult to, you know, hold on to someone's hand that's all wet, you know, and, you know, they're in the river and there might be turbulent water. So the best way to, to bring them into the raft is actually to have them turn away from you, right? Facing the other way and, and you take them by the, the shoulder straps of their life jacket and you just you know, hoist them in that way. And so you're the one basically doing all the work and they're just letting you. Like that's the, the easiest way. And that's a decent, though not perfect illustration of what God does for us in saving us. Listen, guys, we, we didn't have the capacity to like reach up to God. Like we were unconscious in the water. In fact, we were dead. There was no reaching up on our part. Instead, God's the one who initiates. He's the one who makes the first move. He's the one who draws us to himself and puts saving faith into our hearts. He, he's the one who enables us to exercise faith in Christ and come to repentance. That's why in Philippians 1.29, Paul speaks of believing in Christ as something that has to be granted to us. Look it up later. That's the word he used. Faith, it says, has to be granted. Also, Looking ahead in Acts, in Acts 16, 14, it says of a woman named Lydia that, quote, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the gospel. Lydia couldn't respond on her own. God had to open her heart. So understand that salvation in its entirety is a work of God. He's the author of salvation, not only in the sense that he sent Jesus to die for us, but also in the sense that he actively and miraculously brings us to saving faith. We don't meet God halfway. 
reach up to God as he reaches down to us. Instead, anything that we do, right, the, the repentance and faith that we exercise, it's all the result of what God first does in our hearts. Another way to say it is that God's grace is the cause, not the effect of any change within us. So just understand that if you're a Christian, you didn't become what you are because you were wise enough or virtuous enough or because you somehow found within yourself enough strength to reach up to God. That's not what happened. No, you were totally unable to take even one step in the right direction. You were helpless. And God, in his mercy, he came to your rescue. Then as we continue moving forward, we see thirdly that God's grace humbles us before it saves us. God's grace humbles us before it saves us. Look at verses 8 and 9. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. So the result of Saul's encounter with Jesus was that he was blind. And he remained blind for three whole days. He had to depend on others to lead him by the hand into Damascus and, and to take care of all his needs for, for that whole period of time. And in all likelihood, the reason Jesus did that to him is because Saul needed to be humbled. See, Saul was a Pharisee. And as a Pharisee, I'm sure he was quite proud of his moral superiority and religious achievements. Uh, he studied under the most respected rabbi of the day, a man named Gamaliel. And also as a Pharisee, he would have memorized the entire Old Testament law, word for word. And we, he would have also taken painstaking measures to go above and beyond what the law required. So Saul's religious credentials were quite impressive. Yet that just made it all the more necessary for Jesus to humble him. And that's something that's necessary, not just for Pharisees like Saul, but also for everyone before they can come to Jesus. Because everyone has a proud heart. Deep down, we all think that we are good enough, or at least that we have the, the capacity to be good enough to earn God's favor. That's like our default way of thinking. And so what we need is for God to demolish our pride. And just like a, a demolition company might come in and take a wrecking ball to a building, we need God to take a wrecking ball to our pride. Right? Not one brick can be left on top of another. Everything that we're looking to and leaning on and trusting in apart from Jesus has to be demolished. And we have to be brought to the place where we're willing to come to God with just 
the empty hands of a beggar ready to receive salvation as the free gift that it is. Dependent not in any way on our own merits, but only on the merits of Christ. Then the fourth characteristic of grace we see in this passage is that God's grace reveals to us the glory of Jesus. God's grace reveals to us the glory of Jesus. Notice that the central feature of this passage is Jesus revealing himself to Saul. On the road to Damascus, Saul saw Jesus in his glory. He had a personal encounter with Jesus that forever changed him. And that's the most fundamental aspect of any true conversion. Becoming a Christian isn't just about embracing this, you know, set of abstract theological propositions. It's about encountering and embracing the person of Jesus. Not just the idea of Jesus, but the person of Jesus. Just like Saul saw Jesus in his glory on the road to Damascus, we need to see Jesus in his glory as well. Obviously not physically, but spiritually. We have to see Jesus in the glory of his righteousness, in the glory of his love, in the glory of his power, in, in the glory of his goodness, in the glory of his grace. And it's his grace that reveals these things to us. We can't behold Jesus in this way until he opens our eyes to do so. So what about you this morning? Have you ever encountered not just the idea of Jesus, but the person of Jesus? Have your eyes ever been opened to behold the glory of Jesus in a life-changing way? Guys, this is what's so transformative about conversion. Seeing Jesus is what changes us. Encountering him. And the same can be said not only of our conversion, but really of the entirety of the Christian life. The way we grow and the way we're transformed to a progressively greater degree is by beholding the glory of Jesus. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So how does it say we're transformed? What is it that transforms us? Beholding the glory of the Lord. Listen, the way we overcome sin in our lives isn't just by gritting our teeth and trying harder. It's by experiencing Jesus and enjoying Jesus and beholding the glory of Jesus in such a way that sin, it just becomes undesirable. Also, and not only that, beholding the glory of Jesus positively changes us as well. Something happens within us when our eyes gaze upon Jesus in his manifold perfections. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. 
So as a Christian, hopefully, you're seeking that out. Like, for example, when you read the Bible, hopefully, you're on the lookout, not just for practical principles for living, but also for what that text reveals about Jesus, right? Like, ask God to help you see in that text with fresh eyes how amazing and how wonderful Jesus is. And building off of that, back in Acts 9, we see a fifth characteristic of God's grace. That God's grace opens our eyes to truly see. The passage goes on to describe how God sends a Christian named Ananias to heal Saul of his blindness. Uh, Verses 18 and 19 describe what happens when Ananias comes and lays his hands on Saul. We read, And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. And those scales falling from Saul's eyes are intended to picture the way in which God's grace had removed the blinders from Saul's spiritual eyes as well. For the first time in his life, he was able to see things as they really are. And that leads us to the theme that's been communicated really throughout this passage, which is that salvation from beginning to end is a work of God's grace. God's grace is given to us even when we were totally undeserving. God's grace initiates our journey to faith. God's grace brings us to a place where we're ready to come to Christ, humbling us before it saves us. God's grace reveals to us the glory of Jesus and God's grace opens our eyes to truly see. It all comes back to grace. In fact, we read about Ananias, right? Well, guess what the name Ananias means? Ananias is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Hananiah, which means Yahweh has been gracious. Do you see how God's grace is just filling every nook and cranny of this passage? It's everywhere. And as we think about the grace God's shown to us, even when we were in such a helpless and wretched condition, it should inspire us to something more than simple contemplation. (laughs) It should inspire us to action where we live lives. We, we devote our lives to the God who's been gracious to us in this way. I remember one time I encountered a, a lady going door to door as a Jehovah's Witness. And um, she looked a, sort of elderly, I guess, maybe 75 years old, maybe even 80. And so I asked her yeah, how much time that she spent going door to door the way she was. And she replied to me that uh, she would, was in what they call the Pioneer Club, which I didn't know about it, but the, apparently there's this Pioneer Club that they have. And in order to be in that club, you, you spend, that means you spend at least 70 hours a month going door to door. So this elderly lady 
would, would spend 70 hours a month go, going door to door and, and telling, you know, spreading that, that message. And uh, of course, if you're familiar with Jehovah's Witness theology, then you know that she believed that her doing that was at least a part of her essentially earning a right standing with God. And as I thought about what she said and about what she was doing, I became very convicted about the disparity between her religious devotion and my own. And I had this thought cross my mind. Um, I, I thought to myself that shouldn't we who understand that we're saved by grace be more devoted rather than less devoted than this woman who thinks she's saved by works? Like, shouldn't our grace-based mentality motivate us to do more than this woman's works-based mentality was motivating her to do? I mean, something's wrong if our devotion is less than hers. Of course, our devotion doesn't necessarily need to manifest itself in us going around knocking on doors, but it does need to manifest itself in some way. It all comes back to this idea of us being captured by the grace of God. If you remember, that's what I identified as the main idea of the sermon, right? That's on his way to capture Christians, Saul ends up being captured by the grace of God. So just think, when's the last time you were captured by the grace of God? Like, when's the last time that you were so in awe and overwhelmed by God's grace that it's like it took hold of you. It captured you. When's the last time that you found God's grace truly amazing? In a life-changing, sin-renouncing, Jesus-loving, evangelism-motivating kind of way. We began our look at this passage with the story of John Newton, that profane, blasphemous, grossly immoral slave trader who was transformed by God's grace in a, a radical way. And out of the depth of his experience of God's grace, he wrote the most famous hymn of all time. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound has saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So again, when was the last time that you were amazed by grace?